Hi and welcome everyone to the I have a dream podcast where host Rajan Navani initiates candid conversations with industry leaders and experts to explore their aspirations for India as we enter a golden period. Rajan is the national chairman of CII's Council on Future Businesses, India at 75 and the Artificial Intelligence Task Force and chairman, managing director and CEO of Jet Synthesis. Today's episode features Rohini Nilekani, the chairperson of Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies, where she shares her vision for philanthropy and a thriving community in India in the next 25 years. To find out more, stay tuned. Ladies and gentlemen and welcome to this uh, fireside chat. I have a dream with none other than Rohini Nilekani. I don't think she needs any introduction, but she's the chairperson of the Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies, an author, a philanthropist, and many, many other characteristics uh, that define uh, what uh, a new India can be shaped by. So, Rohini, really looking forward to your thoughts today on, on how we can shape the new India, you know, as a country, as, as, as people who have come together to not only celebrate what we have achieved, you know, in 75 years of our independence, but more importantly, you know, talk about and think through what we can, you know, in the next 25 years as our Honorable Prime Minister likes to, you know, really refer to this uh, this period, you know, really now as one which is going to be the bright part of what India can be as we move from India at 75 uh, to, you know, India at 100. So, very, very warm welcome and thank you for joining us here. You know, to begin with, uh, share a little bit about your journey as an author and then to a philanthropist. And I know both of those uh, kind of uh, professions require to to be a very giving person. <laughs> you know, you're you're, you're giving a, a, a lot in, in different shapes and forms. But but just uh, a little bit about you know how what motivated you to uh, to be a part of these two things and then really step into how we can you know uh, get capture your vision for what India can be. Uh, thank you very much, Rajan, and namaste to everyone who's listening. Uh, I think it's a really important moment in India and I'm so glad that CI has held this discussion for the last 15 years. I remember you all starting it way back in 1960 and it seems like such a different time now. Uh, very happy to be a part of this chat, Rajan. And you asked me, so I'll keep it very brief. I was a journalist right out of college. I went and did, you know, I just got into journalism, just dove into it, found that it suited me very well. And from there, I started writing as well. As a journalist, you really get to see what's happening around in society from a different lens than you would as, say, an entrepreneur or just a homemaker or a businesswoman or whatever. Um, and so it allows you to see different people's lives. And I was always very interested in issues of justice and inclusion. And I think being a journalist and watching other journalists do phenomenal work helped me to see how much work there still was so that everyone could be part of the vision of, a, of an India that had abundance and justice for all. So I guess from there, once I became wealthy and found myself uh, being called a philanthropist, I think the journey was easier because I was a journalist and a writer. Now, I think what, what, what you said is about this, this switch, right? Especially when you're seeing the issues at the ground level, uh, you know, then to be able to figure out, 
you know, what could be the change that can be made is is really a, a great way to people to understand. No, it's a very important issue of our times, Rajan. If I may flag it right at the outset. how can we cultivate the empathy to see from the other side right not just from one other side but from many other sides and i think that is a societal muscle that we all need to develop in this india which is moving so fast in so many directions but if we lose that sense of empathy where we are able to see from the shoes of others less fortunate then all our vision will not come to fruition right so that's what keeps uh, me awake and i suspect my husband nandan as well how can we be part of something where a lot of people are included in the good vision for my our beloved country no no and and this thought is probably what you know made you the best grassroots philanthropist as forbes has called you this year you know because really making that change and understanding like what you said empathy because the millions or hundreds of millions you know in india that have to be moved out of poverty and really you know making that meaningful difference in their lives can be a a big part of what you know i think we can contribute but tell me when you when you go about with philanthropy and working you know in in those areas where do you see the challenges right i mean what would enable you to do more in a way if you were to like you know think about it in that context i think um, uh, right away i think see my philanthropy comes from a very simple vision although we do work across many sectors whether it's media justice water environment um and active citizenship and many other portfolios what joins those different sectors together is a very simple philosophy which i have reiterated so many times that people might be bored of it we must move towards making a stronger better society right what i call samaj so that both sarkar and bazaar can be accountable to a strong samaj uh, which wants of course to develop which wants prosperity for all so all my work is about making samaj stronger so how do we and how does samaj become stronger when institutions of association in the samaj become very strong when moral leadership is very sound when innovation is flourishing all around right so those are the kind of things i uh, like to support and for all those things to happen and to reduce the trust deficit between samaj bazaar and sarkar at least i believe that we need very strong civil society institutions and organizations so through my philanthropy and um partly through nandan's philanthropy as well sometimes we do it together sometimes happy we try to support good ideas individuals and institutions that take this inclusive agenda forward and i think what is needed today is little bit i believe rajan on this journey that we all have a common goal india should prosper india india's people should prosper feel happy be abundant you know and be leaders in the world i think the trust divide between the sectors has to be together we have to reduce what has become a bit of a trust deficit and i trust in civil society institutions to help to do that so i believe one of the things we need to do is to enable civil society organizations to flourish and i think right now there is a bit of an issue going on there and i hope we can all talk through it and resolve it because india's democracy needs civil society institutions so that it can thrive because civil society institutions are not handmaidens okay they are mirrors and sometimes we don't like what they show us about ourselves but it is only when we can see what they show 
that we can course correct. And if we sometimes shut to the mirror and we don't look, then we don't course correct fast enough. So whether it's journalists, whether it's the media, or whether it's civil society institutions, they give faster feedback loops because they are very much in touch with people and their lives. And so we try at least um, to support things which allow those feedback loops, positive feedback loops to kick in. And I think we need to smoothen that path a little bit at this juncture if we want to get to where we want all together want to get. You know, I think the intent is, is, is very clear, right? All multiple stakeholders, you know, kind of trying to really make that difference happen, right, on the ground. I think that is very clear. It's the, I think it's the mechanics and the process of, of doing that. And, you know, through this journey of India at 75 also, like which we were talking of, it started with India at 60, you know, brought multiple stakeholders together, civil society, government, you know, industry, academia, you know, literally volunteers and housewives and, and students and, you know, young people, you know, I think we are all deeply committed, you know, to the yes. about us getting a little better organized. Like what you said, building how trust. How do we, yeah. No, how do we, Rajan, together learn to reduce the friction to collaborate? I mean, we try something, we have built a framework. It's one of many frameworks that is possible called societal thinking, which means all our problems are so complex and they're like large societal problems, right? And they can never be solved or resolved unless Saman Bazar Sarkar all get involved. Now, if everyone is working in silos, civil society is working without trusting the government, if Bazar is working without trusting civil society, we will not be able to solve these because these problems cannot be solved by single sectors. However committed the government is, however committed the market is, we can't solve any of these complex problems, right? Unless we figure out ways to allow everyone to do what they are best at. So we have been thinking about this framework called societal thinking, and it's applicable to any sector where we use technology to help reduce the friction to collaborate and to engage as many innovative nodes in, in that process as possible. So these are some of the challenges before us. How do we get various elements who can contribute to solving the problem to work together more seamlessly? No, so you give, give me an example, right? You said this right. framework for societal thinking. I think it's a right. very powerful concept, right? Because everybody does what they're good at, but still, you know, every gap that needs to be filled is filled, right? Because, you, you know, you still fill three gaps and, you know, there are two glaring gaps, you know, that whole ecosystem of prosperity, progress, you know, gets jeopardized. Give, give, can you give us a few examples of what has worked? So from my experience, I'll give you two very briefly. One was before the framework came up. At that time, we had started this societal mission called Pratham Books in 2004, where we were trying to solve a simple problem, which is that India's children simply did not have enough books to read, written in by Indian authors with an Indian context in multiple Indian languages, easily accessible all over the nation. And we set out to do that. And although I have retired from it, the mission has gone forward very rapidly. And today, more than 100 million children across the world, not just in India, are, are, are using and reading the content on Pratham Books and Story Weaver, its other website. Okay. So how did that happen? That happened because we said that we will unbundle the problem, that it is because there is not enough 
there are not enough readers, writers, illustrators, editors, translators who have been activated. And yet in this nation of storytellers, everyone can participate in this simple societal mission to get a book in every child's hand. So we were actually through creating an open source platform within the creative commons, we were able to unlock all the marvelous writers and, you know, and teachers wanted to help, parents wanted to get involved, children wanted to read. And today it is one of the big success stories in the whole, in the country's mission to get our children reading and learning. And that you can only do if you unlock the potential of the state to participate, if you unlock the potential of the bazaar, because Pratham Books books are also sold, and unlock the uh, volunteer nature of our society and its civil society institutions who participated in this mission so that in a decentralized way, everybody did what they could. And today, we have we are one of the biggest successful story, uh, stories in the world in children's publishing, okay? Then if you take that further to X-Step, which Nandan and I and Shankar set up um, a few years ago, the problem of children's education has a lot to do with how teachers know how to teach. And our the union government was very keen that we help them set up Diksha, which is a platform on which teachers can learn from each other. So it's it, it, it's a kind of peer-to-peer -peer network and we help them to build that and the kind of magic that has happened on that network where the parent community, the teacher community primarily and children have been able to, able to access more learning opportunities and especially during the pandemic than would have been possible without Diksha being set up. And so it was envisioned if we think and design in a way that we can respond at the scale of the problem and we don't forget to bring in all three sectors, I think we can move fast to crack some of our more challenging issues. And climate change is really going to force us to bring out all our creativity and innovation and collaboration now, don't yeah. you think? No, no, absolutely. I think climate change is now right at the center of everything that the world is discussing. You know, but how does philanthropy come into climate change? Like how do you see the role of philanthropy? Yeah, thank you for asking that because I really wish we can inspire more philanthropists to think of climate change. See, there are big players who look at uh, more on the mitigation side, right? There are players around the world who are looking at the clean energy transition. And that's critically important, of course. And if there are big ticket donors who are willing to put big money into looking at our green energy, whether it's hydrogen or how do we get away from fossil uh, dependence, I mean, that is really welcome. And there's a huge opportunity to partner with the state, of course. But there's another side to it which affects people as a whole, right? So how can we support organizations all over India? And there are fabulous ones that are trying to understand, first of all, what is happening. So the, the think tanks, the academic institutions, the research institutions that are first trying to put together a picture of what may happen. And there are institutions that are working with these institutions to say, unfortunately, if things happen like this, then how can we prevent loss of life, prevent the absolute environmental destruction? How can we help people be more resilient? What do they need to learn now in order to be able to be flexible in their response when things go wrong? And there are a lot of people, a lot of civil society institutions doing really good work on that. I do hope Indian philanthropists come forward and put some risk capital and heart capital into, into this effort 
Um, there is also something called the India Climate Collaborative, which is bringing a lot of funders and a lot of practitioners together. So there are tremendous opportunities for us on the mitigation side with big bucks, but also on the adaptation side with a lot more innovation capital. Because our people, we are at great risk, but we are a resilient society and we need to really strengthen our resilience. And philanthropy has a role to play for sure in this process. You know, we always look at philanthropy from the you know aspect of what's the quantum of wealth, the quantum of money that is given. But you know, when you add that to to the skilled volunteering, or you ask just the time that people can spend with others to make a difference. You know, one of the things that you know, even through one of our foundations at the group Jetline Group Jetson, we've been promoting is individual social responsibility. Get individuals to watch what they sustain and you know how they consume water, how they use you know, different aspects and really move from a corporate, you know, uh, social responsibility, which is really about how much money you spend or, you know, individual philanthropists to a social responsibility that is more around action and, you know, what you can do with time, like so many of the things that you said, you know, that can affect other, you know, children and others. It's just about giving time, you know, great content, take it out to people, educate them. So I think there's a there's a huge role that, you know, corporate sector and what you rightly said, combined with civil society can play to help, you know, realize the ambitions of a government, right? At any government at any any level, right? Whether it's at a district or a state, you know, or at the at the center, really wants to see prosperity, you know, amongst their people and, and, and uplift the country as a whole. So I think as we, you know, think about this collaborative nature uh, of, uh, of coming together, you know, I, I think there is, again, you know, like what you raised, the role of philanthropy, particularly climate change, right? The role of, of, of philanthropy, you know, uh, especially when it goes across uh, generations, you know, so what we call like now gen or philanthropy as a strategic investment that will trigger, you know, a different kind of change. You know, I think these are the themes that really that we believe if we can kind of, you know, like what you talked of, you know, that framework uh, for for the, uh, for society thinking how, you know, what could be frameworks around which, you know, a philanthropist can come in and, you know, whether it's 10 rupees to to whatever it might be, you know, uh, can contribute, but that, that contribution combined with all the things that you said, Sarkar, Bazaar, and, you know, all of that can create a greater impact. You know, any any thoughts around that? Yeah, sure. First of all, I think Indian philanthropy is at a very exciting stage because so much wealth, as you you people know better than I do, has come into India. We talk about unicorns and these are often young entrepreneurs and I found them already open to asking the question, even before they realize the value of their notional unicorn status, they're already asking what should we be thinking of to give forward. And that's a real sea change and I hope it spreads like wildfire, okay? So, but how do we help such people who want to give forward but don't quite know how to do it yet because they haven't had the practice? I think there are lots of organizations that, that have come up for precisely this purpose and old philanthropy can support those, those intermediary organizations so that for new philanthropists, there are ready resources to just jump into philanthropy. So that's one thing. The second thing, of course, is as you said, it's not just the extremely wealthy, but a lot of others who are wanting to give forward in a meaningful manner. We already have a lot of retail philanthropy in India over centuries and millennia, where people just help each other in any crisis. And that 
feeling of our society that that tradition and those values have to be nurtured at all costs. And there are, again, organizations that are reimagining retail philanthropy. How can we get individuals, as you said, to exercise their individual responsibility in a structured manner? That's happening too, and that's very exciting to support. Um, the, the, the last thing I can think of to answer your question is, um, see, there are many, many things coming up like living my promise, Founders pledge. Of course, there's a giving pledge for ultra high net worth individuals, and I hope more Indians will join that um, as Nandan and I and others have. Uh, and there are many such. See, when you have satsang, when you have a community to go to, then you feed off each other's excitement about the joy of giving and giving strategically. So there are intermediary organizations doing this. There are lots of good civil society organizations to give to. The bridging is happening. And the most exciting thing is the now generation wants to participate immediately and not wait till they're old like me to start to give forward for our country's progress immediately. So the opportunity is immense. We have to stay. We have to, we have to not drop the ball at this juncture. We have to make sure that philanthropy is seen and we have to be transparent about our philanthropy. I'm sorry, Rajan, the days of saying, nahi, nahi, hum very quietly, dete and all is over. There is no harm. We are not doing something wrong when we do philanthropy. It's not to boast, it's to inspire. And I think that's very important that it is transparent and seen. Again, not to boast, but to inspire. So all these things are going to keep the cycle of giving from the individual citizen to the most wealthy person in India. And for the most wealthy persons in India, I would also say, you really have to be seen to be philanthropic and do it, not just do it and be seen to do it. Because I think there is beginning to be a sense of, why is it that only so few people have so much money? How is that going to serve the whole of India in the next 25 years, unless that wealth is seen to be helping the whole of the country, right? So these questions are on the public table. They are in the, in the public discourse. And the rich, and that includes me, have to be seen to use our wealth responsibly. And so there are many people ready to help, but this ball must roll and become bigger of giving forward. What, what inspires uh, philanthropy? You know, like what you rightly said, right? People say, you know, it's not to boast, but you know, philanthropists also, sometimes expect recognition, uh, you know, or you get, you know, some financial tax break. So, and very rightly so, right? Because you say my dollar or my rupee spent will go that much further if I'm given, you know, a good financial, uh, you know, kind of a break to be able to or inspire me to do more. So recognition, financial, you know, considerations, these inspire more philanthropy. But what what else or, or what according to you really inspires more philanthropy? I think, you know, the most sustainable thing in human history and on this planet is people's people's need to help other people. I think that is the most sustainable thing. Have you ever seen a society where, ever in human history where people have not tried to help others in distress? I think we are programmed to help other people. And if it is made easy, we will do more of it. And so I think there is... And we all know the neuroscience of how you feel when you help someone. It's not even by giving a million dollars. Even if you help a blind person cross the road, okay, you help the blind person, but how did you feel, right? That we are wired 
to help other people because we can see ourselves in other people. Empathy is there. There are very few people who don't have that natural empathy. So I think when you start giving and you would give for many reasons, somebody can say tax breaks, this, that. But when you start giving, you know, the joy of giving kicks in. Your, your sense of purpose, you feel a sense of purpose. Life has more meaning. And then, of course, you get immediate feedback if you're doing good things and people are telling you that this is working. And everyone wants to live in a better society, Rajan. So philanthropy has many motivations. Society must celebrate philanthropists, but without putting them on some pedestal as though they are better than anybody else. But celebrate the acts of giving by everybody. Because that also helps when we when people know they are being celebrated and that they are being understood for what they are doing. That's also inspiring. So there are many reasons, but mainly I believe the reasons are intrinsic. You know, so having a a, a philanthropist as an integral part of society, playing or fulfilling one role in a larger societal context, could be something that we could look over. You know, twenty five years and how do we have in a country of. Uh, you know, 1.3 billion people, I don't know, 100 million people who just say that they are philanthropists and that's job or their role, you know, in the country <laughs> as we move towards, you know, India at 100. But, but no, I think a very powerful point you made because it's intrinsic, it is natural, it's human, you know, to, to be able to have the need to help people. I think very, 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 very well put. You know, but we still talk of India, you know, Rohini, uh, where there is inequality. Right. I think, you know, any progress that we see in a country like India, the non-negotiable, as we say, of this journey of the of India towards global leadership is inclusivity. It's really about being able to do that at scale, you know, making, you know, everything that we do, you know, affordable for all, you know, and, and getting more and more people. That challenge has got accelerated, I think, with the pandemic, you know, and other things. So what, what do you think can help balance that, right? I mean, is there... Is there something that we can do to ensure that you know inclusive development is never compromised, you know, as we move forward? I mean, it's obviously very, very hard, right, to balance everything. Because sometimes when you do pull some one thing out, the other things fall back. And it's very hard to balance that. And that's the really um, I don't uh, I really don't envy the politicians of today anywhere in the world because their mandate has become so much more complex to fulfill. But I think India is in a really good space to take off at a very good point. I think we forget how much the last 75 years have sowed the seeds for the moment. It's no use saying that, you know, history begins at this point or that point. Since the moment of independence, every Indian has been striving to arrive at where we are now, which is hopefully in a place where India can, uh, you know, really innovate our way. Already we have seen such a reduction in extreme poverty. Uh, yeah, the pandemic did set us back and we must never forget to acknowledge that like everywhere in the world, in India too, the pandemic set people back who had just found their way out, right, out of poverty and were feeling confident. So support for them, of course, is going to remain extremely critical. But otherwise, as my husband Nandan is very optimistic about this, India's digital revolution has made it so possible to include the last person or what I like to call the first person. Right? And in so many other ways, so much innovation has been unleashed. A new sense of pride has been unleashed. If we can tap all this without forgetting our tradition of democracy, inclusion, right? 
and 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 justice for all i think if we don't forget that and we move on that path with the goal of as, as the prime minister says right sabka saath aur sabka vikas then i can't see any other country that is on as good a wicket uh, to be able to do we keep our moral frameworks and values of inclusion and justice side by side at least i believe that very strongly and i think we can do it why can't we 5000 year civilization um, with so many lessons already learned but that's the beauty right about the country it's not only 75 years it's that rich culture that rich heritage you know at one point india had 35% of the global gdp so to say and it kept decreasing you know over over the years we're down to probably a single percentage point but now is the opportunity to grow it back and i think it's that deep rooted culture and you know what you rightly said the ability for us to take everyone along that will enable that to happen and as a matter of fact i strongly believe it's not only us taking people from india along it's actually being the you know the stabilizing factor for the world at large you know literally taking all of humanity it comes upon india because even if you look at what is happening around the world today right i mean we are that one little stable balancing power in the world you know we do have a role to play i think you know at a larger level uh, you know once we are able to you know ensure that we are able to get our people who are the citizens of india you know out to a particular point and i think the world is looking for us to be able to get into that position so as we look towards that we really have a sukhino bhavantu so sadvendra is the important part of sukhino bhavantu right Correct. so Correct. and that's what we've been saying for millennia now what's your vision for india like if you say my india and you know if you dream you know the india 25 years from today you see what's the india you want to leave for the next generation what's that dream you know where is it what's that big big moment or that picture that you would like to paint for us i want to article about reimagining abundance because i feel that while we talk of material progress it's natural because that's easy to measure right uh, but i would like to see an india i mean it's a bit idealistic but it's a young country and young people are idealistic okay so a, a a country in 25 years where yes there is economic sufficiency for all everyone okay economic sufficiency for all it's not like we want to become a country of billionaires god knows there's enough research to tell you that that's not what is going to lead to people's happiness sukhino bhavantu doesn't happen if everyone becomes a billionaire even if that were possible so imagine if we learned to use both the female and male and all energies in between to nurture our country's land its earth its soil because i really care about the environment and if we with too much of the environmental capital all our other things that we are doing will not work right so i think a, a country that is economic sufficiency that is looking for spiritual progress as much as material progress that is able to nurture its environment three or four things people keep people happy much research has shown that okay being in nature but if you are destroying nature and if you don't preserve the best parts of it we won't be able to get that happiness and being with friends and having associations okay of community so more than just material progress if we can have metrics for some of these things because eventually you want a society that is both prosperous and happy and so if i saw in india 25 years ago i would be looking at all these metrics of course economic spiritual however we figure out how to define that and nurturing 
of this planet in which we have been placed. You know, often Bhutan says you have to measure, you know, gross happiness index, right? Yeah. And, and what you say besides the, you know, uh, the the economic impact of of that. But but you know, you touched upon a very important point of of the spiritual index, right? I mean, there is something in India that you know India is providing to the world, right? Like if you see areas like mindfulness, yoga, you know, all those things that make people far more responsible, you know, enable them to to understand their own capacity better so that they can, you know, perform at a different level compared to that. All of that is going out from India to the world, right? It is traditionally, you know, you know, been there. How do we leverage that strength, you know, as we look ourselves forward? How do we really leverage that strength for the betterness of, you know, everything in planet or people uh, as we move forward? Well, today is a good day to ask that question is Buddha Purnima. And, uh, you know, the Buddha inside us is, is always there to be harvested. And when I say Buddha, I don't mean particularly the saint of any one particular religion, but Buddha as the spiritual source in all of us. And God knows there's enough across all the religions that have flourished in India that allow it to go from beyond religion into spirituality. And I think that's what the West wanted to take. And that's what the East has been different in terms of how it organizes its societies, right? And I think India has so much to give forward from that. But I do feel that we should not get carried away also, if you don't mind my saying so, because if we do it from ahankar, that we are better than anyone else, it just won't work, right? If we are able to say that with humanity, we have progress and we have some things to offer, it's more likely to be uh, received. But to do that, like they say, physician, heal thyself. In this country of such rich traditions, such syncretic tradition, to, to somehow find the basis for harmony amongst all religions, all communities, and, and for the divisions of caste remain India's big challenge, right? So looking inward and outward at the same time so that we can harmonize better is, I think, the challenge before us today. And I think young people get that. I think young people get that. Yeah, I think I think today's generation is 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 what you rightly say is, is able to relate to a lot of these, but in a very different way, right? Especially looking at the situations you know around them. And you talked about hangar and you know you go therefore when you it's a it's it's a tough line, right, to go because what happens is once you you attach ego, you know, then you get attached to the outcomes. You know, how do you still be detached to what you're doing but still? continue to make the impact. I think I mean, I'm just a normal citizen. Yeah. Uh, I can't answer that. Yeah. But um, I, I, I think it's best to frame it in terms of inclusion and justice, right? If we, if we hold the mirror to ourselves, then sometimes the right part does reveal itself. So yeah. we want prosperity for all and not just for some. So what does that mean, right? There has to be some kind of restraint. There has to be some kind of actual processes put in place so that we are we have we are not ruled by law but that we are the rule of law and that our founding constitutional principles are really understood by a lot more people than they are you know less english and more more understanding the spirit behind are the founding constitutional values of this country and then 75 years 
they remain more relevant than ever. So to use them as a springboard for the next 25 years, I think that's how we might get there. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. That's probably the only way we will get there. You know, if we are really able to turbocharge, you know, where we are today to, to be able to make such a meaningful, you know, difference. I'm going to take a few questions, uh, Ravini, that we might have, you know, from, from some of the uh, audience that is here. The first question is, do you feel more productive investment is needed for social sectors like skill development, healthcare, environment protection, energy and employment generation? Uh, do we need more productive investment? No, I, I couldn't agree more. I think we need more of our brightest minds and we already have quite a few of them engaged in these questions. But I think we need uh, more philanthropic capital coming uh, to build the capacity of people to take the challenges that are to come. So, and we need, so therefore, it's not the old fashioned kind of skilling. Today, we have to skill for things that we don't even know. We have to skill for people to understand how to deal with complexity, how to deal with uncertainty. And all that, you know, since there is no fixed curriculum that everybody has the answer for that, it's going to need a lot of experimentation and innovation. And that requires philanthropic capital because that is risk capital. And if a lot more people could come into this, I think for such a young country that is going to face, like everybody else, so many challenges on the environmental and other fronts, that capital, if it is used smartly, I think it's going to make the difference between resilience and failure. So yes, we, I hope more and more people will put their minds, hearts and pockets into these spaces. So, so if you were to look at you know, what India should do in the next 200 days, right? In, in terms of priorities, oh <laughs> right? We have a lot of priorities, right? But if, if you look at it from Rohini's lens, right? What would you prioritize, you know, uh, today, right? Today and now? You know, that's a really hard question for me to answer. Suddenly thrown at me like that. I bet uh, some other people could answer it very well. But the, that's a very short period of time to... The one thing I'm right now interested in is, um, I mean, there are so many things to do. One, okay, next six months, get children back on the learning track, okay? Those who fell back during the pandemic, back on their feet, whatever it takes, okay? Number three, uh, something that I'm interested in, which uh, is let's look at all our laws. Let, let's look at all our laws. And some of them, and the government is very much wanting to do this exercise. How can we fast track rationalizing um, many of our laws to free up more innovation among citizens? Okay. One thing is this community, which I'm sure Rajan, CII, and all of you are interested in. But I'm talking at the Samaj level. Some of our laws are quite restraining for societal innovation. So looking at laws and, and rationalizing them so that we can uh, just unleash societal innovation without fear. So if I had to choose these three things, these, these are not easy to do in 200 days, but I'll focus on them. Getting all children back on the learning track, and a lot is happening, more needs to happen. Looking carefully at those who lost out during these last two years, helping them back on their feet, because that's what they need the most, and India needs them to be back on their feet too. And number three, just looking at our laws and legislation framework, so that even the laws and policies written forward are written in a framework where action, crime and punishment, action and deterrence are, are, are you know, comprehensively understood and defined. These are the three things I would choose. And of course, I'm always going to say on the environment side, 
what can we do to nurture our water soil and air i think that i was i that's a very very it's a subject very close to your heart right especially water security soil air and all that we have you know on 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 earth that is going to ensure that you know we can all leave behind a planet <laughs> at least which you know which is uh, you know which people can inhabit and we don't have to really look necessarily for options and on other planets uh, where of course the human imagination and vision is going so i know we have the last few minutes left and i'm going to you know take you on to that imagination part now you know really you know as we and you know nandan's also technology you also you know been part of that journey through you know all of this and technology has played such an important role roeni and it's continuing to play right you can add the word digital before any word and it makes sense so you add the word tech agritech digital health you just it's just making sense today right so technology is going to play so you know there are so many new technologies and those technologies can make an impact you know you take ai vr blockchain ai i mean so many things and i'm sure you must be dealing with a lot of these jargons in different shapes and formats and i know you've talked about moral leadership at some point right you we, we've talked about technology being able to you know bring about transparency bring about an ability for us to reach more people at scale you know many of the larger solutions that society needs you know since you're talking of samaj you know are being enabled through technology right so if you were to see the role of technology particularly you know as we move to the future you know and and enable better economic livelihoods and strength for people you know how how do you see that shaping and and if so which specific aspects of technology i know it's a little uh, thing but again you know imagining uh, you know science fiction is now becoming real <laughs> thanks to technology so yeah. where would you uh, you know take us in that journey so uh, of course being with nandan you know i get schooled a lot in his vision so i'm beginning to buy into it though i'm not at all a techie uh, but i can buy vision for technology for inclusion okay but because of where i come from as a journalist as a writer as a philanthropist um the the thing that i'm interested in is of course always if we can remember that technology is the means and not the end and sometimes we forget it technocrats forget it technology is the means it is not the end yes it might be very fascinating and exciting and all that but it is only the means don't forget what is supposed to be because otherwise the means can distort the end so i think that's number one concern secondly i think in a young country that is going digital so fast okay i think we also have to worry about how digital is affecting people's lives and their mental health as well and we have seen a lot of stuff happening so how can we get together how can we constantly keep on the table the discourse on where these technologies are headed um i mean there there are example in biotechnology there are bioethics committees all around the world right for technology now there are a lot of people questioning how far should this technologies like ai be allowed to go and i think we need a public discourse around these things it should not be like oh these technology issues are too big and it's only meant for technologists no technology is too important to be left to technologists alone and so the public discourse must increase and deepen so young people today who are so fascinated by digital everything are also beginning to question and to participate in 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 creating new ground rules in creating new customs around it in 
not letting people get isolated, to bring society in, to use technology to connect and not to divide. This is going to require actual work. It's not going to happen on its own. Okay, So you need a digital civil society as well. Just like you need civil society in, in, in the physical world, you need civil society in the digital world also. That is helping people to make sure and to make better policy to stop abuse of technology. Helping to make sure the enabling policy helps people to connect via technology and achieve our social goals and not be thrown back into some a babble sort of uh, space which we find ourselves in because of social media. None of these things are easy, Rajan, but if they are absolutely critical if the digital and technology world is not going to overwhelm our humanitarian aspirations. Now, and our humanitarian aspirations are now, you know, moving to the metaverse, right? Where our avatars are going to take shape and form. Where all the things so, that so we can't assume that's going to happen. Uh, let's but, not let, let's not have self-fulfilling prophecies put out. Much as Mr. What do you see? Where you you have you know you have the ability to live another life in a digital world. You know what what's your personal take? I mean, since you. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not at all equipped to speak on this, you know, I find yeah. it, I'm very, in that sense, too old now, I suspect, <laughs> to yeah. understand where this is heading. Yeah. But uh, I tell you, I believe in the life of the imagination. So yeah. I, I'm a writer, I'm a creative writer as well. So I can understand that urge. And, you know, human beings evolve in so many directions. So while I understand it, I think we need to have a sane more always uh, that, that we can listen to. No, I think I think you raised a very, very powerful point that it's not only technologists who need to discuss and debate, you know, when it talks of ethics. Today we're talking of putting a chip in the brain that will change the capacity of brain utilization, right? What impact that could have on, you know, on, on people, on, on humanity as a race, right? So while some will get ahead, what about the others? You know, there's there's so much to do with ethics, man and machine working together, machine is ordering man what to do, right? Is, right. That, what, is that why we've created society? So imagine algorithms, imagine algorithms that will write new algorithms, okay? That's the final nightmare. So, and we are not at all far away from it, it's probably already here. So I think this is a time when we can go beyond divides between you and me and somebody else, because this is going to affect all of humanity, right? It's a great thing to unite around. What should humanity use technology uh, in the future? And there are many authors like Harari who have talked about this at great length. There are so many uh, philosophers who are beginning to talk about it. It's a great point for humanity to come together and, and discuss these things without animosity, right? And, and this is definitely in our future to India at 100. And like what oh, you yeah. said, it's here and now, it's, it's happening. And many of the Indians are creating that for the world. So it's some, some shape and form. So I think, yeah. you know, it's an added responsibility. You know? We have to embrace, we have to embrace these new technologies, embrace them. But as I keep saying, on that note, what a lovely, lovely way to say that we got to be cautious, but we still got to be able to move forward, you know, together. And, and, and I think this only happens, what you rightly said, with the right satsang, you know, the right set of people coming together to build, you know, for the future of India. So, Rohini, I'm going to take you up, you know, on this journey as we move towards India at 100. Your satsang is infectious. And I'm sure it will be not only to 
every stakeholder you know of society who is involved in shaping that new india but even to many of the young people and inspire many people you know to step up and do more so again it's been a wonderful uh, you know joy chatting with you and and look forward to a lot more i know i don't know how our time of 45 minutes just ran off but uh, we can keep chatting and look forward to more conversations but more action also together as we move forward on this journey so thank you thank you Thanks. so much for inviting me rajan and no, thank you pleasure. for all that you do all <laughs> of you do for this our country thank you namaste thank you namaste thank you This was Rohini Nilekani, the chairperson of Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies, in an interesting conversation with host Rajan Navani, where she shared her dream for India at 100. Thank you all for tuning into the I Have a Dream podcast. Stay tuned for more conversations where we explore what India has overcome and what India can do to become a strong leader as we enter a golden period.